Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. When we think of the 19th century, it's often portrayed as the first global century. And when it's portrayed like that, there's a whole list of practices that are marshaled to show this change. Everywhere, people started to do the same things. People started to read newspapers. People started to think of themselves as members of a nation. People started to drink coffee and wear Western-style suits and read books that were printed and bound in a particular way. There's this whole set of everyday activities, of bodily practices in the words of C.A. Bailey, that start to spread. One thing that always gets mentioned is the globalization of time. And there's actually three or four narratives about the globalization of time that refer to different kinds of standardization of time that spread at different speeds across the world. The first idea is the idea of time discipline. And if you are a British historian, just picture in your head E.P. Thompson's uh, essay on time discipline and recognize that I know the criticisms of it, and there you go. In this story, before the modern world, people worked in a different kind of relationship to time than people do in the modern world. People would work unevenly throughout the week. Sometimes they would work really hard, other times they wouldn't work very hard at all. Uh, more closer to particular deadlines, people might, you know, do all-nighters like college students do. Whereas when work was slack, people might take a day off. Uh, people might work in one particular activity in one season, and then in another season take care of kids or the home, or work in another kind of activity. That changed with the rise of the factory. With the factory, you enter a particular kind of place in which what you do is work. And you enter that place at a particular time, and you leave it at a particular time. And you are paid based not on the work that you do, but on the time that you spend working there. A great example of the cultural change that goes about because of factory kinds of time discipline is the knocker-upper, which is like a human alarm clock who goes from door to door, window to window in working class neighborhoods, waking up the men so th and women so that they can go to factory work in the morning. And if you didn't make it on time, oftentimes in factories, the gates would shut and you wouldn't be allowed in for your own good to teach you the kind of time discipline that you need to succeed in the modern world. We can think of this as an internalization of that kind of time discipline that we saw with, you know, hardworking Puritans. Time is a gift from God. And if you are a good Christian, then you will use your time effectively in doing the things that you need to do. In this perspective, factories, like factories throughout the entire history of factories, served not merely an economic purpose of making goods, but also a moral purpose of reforming workers, of teaching workers how to use their time effectively. 
But just note, this is very, very different from the traditional kind of time discipline. This time discipline is spatially bounded. You go to work and you leave work at set times. And when you're at work, all you do is work. No singing, no gossiping, no dancing, no drinking. Your time is not your own. And this new kind of time discipline spreads along with the factories. And it also spreads with the second big theme of this globalization of time talk, and that is the spread of the clocks themselves. Because for a person to have good time discipline, they would need to be able to carry around the time with them to know what it was. Europeans had for a really long time been good at making clocks. Um, it may have been because of the need of religious institutions to tell the time at night in order to say particular prayers. But whatever it was, whatever the reason for this uh, advantage was, Europeans were good at making clocks. In the 17th century, uh, it was one of the few things that the Chinese court actually wanted from the West, alongside stuff like coral and guns and silver and maps. The mechanical clock uh, is useful because it allows you to tell time whatever time it is. And usually it keeps time a lot better and with a lot less upkeep than other methods of timekeeping, like water clocks or uh, sand uh, clocks. But clocks also start to change the way that people think of time. Because before a clock, you told the time from the sun, either by looking up at the sun and thinking, okay, here's how far the sun has passed uh, over the uh, meridian, or by making a sundial, or by just looking outside and seeing how bright it is. But in this view of time, time is different every day, and time only happens during the day. You can't tell the time at night unless you're really good at astronomy. And because the rising and the setting of the sun changes every single day, no two hours are alike in each half of the year. Unless you have a mechanical clock in which time becomes regular, in which every single 24-hour period is evenly marked out, and every hour, you know, from each equinox to the next is exactly the same. And keeping of clocks starts to become incredibly, incredibly popular in the 18th century, even amongst workmen. Clocks were like, pocket watches were like the iPods of their day. They were something that people saved up for, something that contemporary uh, uh, commentators thought was oftentimes a little bit uh, too luxurious for the working classes, and something that people would spend any kind of windfall profits on. They were everywhere, these pocket watches. And we can come up with a bunch of different ideas about why, um, they helped people organize their social lives in increasingly complicated urban environments. Uh, they were useful in um, new kinds of task work that required precision. They were useful in shipping. But I think that they were just cool. They were interesting. They were small and sleek, and they, you know, were satisfying to wind. And clocks, too, started to spread along with the other trappings of uh, global capitalism. When imperialists went and set up a city, they would make a 
tower with a public clock that would read the state time, the time that the imperial entity said that it was. And, of course, uh, pocket watches and grandfather clocks and all these consumer clocks were incredibly popular uh, consumer items. They were things that people wanted, not just in Europe, but in places like Japan, where the pocket watch was included in some of the trappings of uh, traditional status hierarchies. The third theme of this globalization of time story is the setting of international standards of time. Now, the problem here is that time is local. Time changes from place to place if you measure time from the sun. You can tell this really, really obviously if you happen to be in a Muslim country where there is a call to prayer. The call to prayer is set on the solar time of each individual mosque, which means that the call to prayer washes over the city like a tidal wave. Now, in the normal course of a person's daily life, this is not much of a problem. The difference is a matter of a few seconds. But as railroads and telegraphs started to knit together distant communities much closer, it did become a problem. If you needed to catch a train somewhere, the fact that different cities had different times meant the issue of transfers and actually catching the train really, really quite a headache. And people would get these railway books, which would help them try to figure out the relative time in different cities. And this wasn't just a matter of convenience for railway passengers. Uh, it was a problem for the engineers of the trains themselves. There were, in fact, a number of train accidents that happened because the engineers were not using the same time. And so railways did it first just as a way of making sure that people wouldn't die. They set time zones that everybody would agree upon. And once people did that, and they saw the benefit of coordinating time zones, the question was from where to start. And there were a number of solutions. Britain wanted the time zones to be based from a meridian that is like a big straight line through the world set at the Greenwich Observatory outside of London. Um, some people wanted to be Jerusalem or Bethlehem. There was a suggestion to make it uh, set from just a small island in the Canaries out in the middle of the Atlantic because then the meridian wouldn't go through any countries, and then the meridian would be apolitical. Uh, Britain won out because in 1883, the meridian set at Greenwich was adopted by the U.S. railways, and then in 1884, there was a big international conference in which everybody basically said, eh, let's do things based on Greenwich Mean Time, which is how things are set today. Um, but it was always this spread of time zones an uneven and incomplete process. Uh, lots of people did not like the new time zones because it could shift the local time up to half an hour, which would often be really difficult to manage uh, during periods of, of limited sunlight, when a shift in half hour before or after could lead to there being a great deal of the day that was actually missed. People would respond to these sorts of things by, say, having institutions actually change their hours of operation to match sunlight time, so that when people moved to using railway time, they would actually be doing the same sort of daily rhythms in sunlight time. 
Another uh, weird sort of thing that happened is discussions over whether the time should be changed in the summer so that people would have more daylight to do things in, the question of daylight savings time. And finally, you have the regulation of the calendar, which actually starts a lot earlier than this story of the regulation of global time. The problem with time zones is that different cities have different times, but this is only really a problem when the scope of daily life expands due to new forms of transportation. The problem with the calendar is that you have to get a number of different things to sync up that's really hard to sync up. One is that the phases of the moon are important. People mark a lot of important things by them, so you want to include the phases of the moon, or months. And also you want to get the rotation of the Earth around the sun, because that's important for keeping up seasonal changes like harvests. But a month, a rotation of the moon, is 29 days. And the rotation of the Earth around the Sun is a little more than 365 days, and these are not equally divisible. So we have a problem that different kinds of calendars end up giving different solutions to. Some calendars would have months of uh, uh, 29 days uh, that would end up being about 360 days long, and then uh, there would be five days that would exist outside of the calendar. Uh, other calendars resorted to leap years. The big moments are the foundation of the Julian calendar, uh, which was made by a buddy of Julius Caesar's, in which we get our system of 12 months and leap years and stuff like that. And then uh, in the 16th century, I think, the development of the Gregorian calendar under Pope Gregory, who wanted to make sure that Easter actually fell around where Easter should fall. But still, this was an incomplete development. Even after the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar we use today, was adopted, it spread only to Catholic countries. It only happened in Britain in 1752. And there were a bunch of kind of half-hearted riots in response because uh, to actually sync up the calendars, it required 11 days to be knocked off, and people got grumpy and, you know, stormed around saying, give us back our 11 days. So these are like the four different strands of this story of the globalization of standard time, and I have to admit something. I was initially attracted to this kind of historiography because I want to tell this story of the 19th century as a spread of particular kinds of practices that remain to this day. So the story of things like standardization of time zones and standardizations of calendars are really, really important because they show just viscerally how the you know underlying grid of modern life was set by these contingent uh, decisions in the 19th century that were often influenced by a bunch of ideas that we now find reprehensible, like eugenics and imperialism and stuff like that. So I spent a long time reading a lot about calendars and time. But I have to be honest, I got really bored reading these stories. I think that there's only a very limited number of stories that you can tell about this globalization of time. People get interested in this topic. They get interested in the clocks and the time zone changes and the ideas behind it. But I don't think that a lot of people have had any great 
earth-shattering ideas. Even the idea of E.P. Thompson, of this new kind of work discipline, has been undermined by recent research that shows that actually people in the pre-modern time did have work discipline. They did have ideas of going to particular places and working really hard. And of course, that this idea of time discipline was not merely focused on the West, that people in China and Mesoamerica had deep senses of regular work discipline. But I read all the books, and so I should have some sense of what's going on in case somebody asks me in the orals exam. Well, thanks very much uh, for giving me your time today in Making of a Historian. Um, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for use of our theme song and Duncan Barton for use of the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tweet about us, post on us on Reddit. does anybody use Dig anymore? Put us on Dig. Write a blog about us. Uh, take a photo of you listening to the podcast and share it or social media or something like that. Um, you can check out our webpage at historian.live and I will speak to you guys tomorrow. Thanks very much for listening. 